Pretty Mental is about accepting our full selves and inspiring others to do the same by being daringly unfiltered. This means completely normalizing all things mental health and the wild journey that has brought us here. We are challenging the stigmatization of normal human suffering, and we are done pretending and subscribing to the notion that it is taboo to have challenging mental health experiences. Welcome to the Pretty Mental Health Club, and enjoy the show. Hey, Valentina. Hey, Paula. And hello, everybody. And welcome to another episode of Pretty Mental. Today, we had the amazing opportunity to bring back an, a guest that we had previously, Lillian Gray Charles, and we deep dove into her journey with post-traumatic growth after a very traumatizing experience that she gets all into. Um, so this is a podcast that is dear to our hearts because you guys know that we are always talking about trauma and advocating for different healing modalities. And Lillian is a huge advocate of the healing process and destigmatizing any of the harsh experiences that we go through as human beings. And just as a quick trigger warning, we do talk about rape in this episode. So prepare yourselves to hear experiences on this. Yeah, we normally we don't really dance around triggers. If you listen to our podcast, you know that we just kind of deep dive into all the heavy shit because we're here to normalize talking about all this stuff without stigma. But at the same time, we feel it's important that, you know, some of you will still want to get that heads up. So and with this pretty mental family, take in a deep breath with us. And tune in. Lillian Gray Charles. She is Hi, my friends. Back. We're so happy to have you. Hey, when was our last episode? I, I meant to look today. When was the first episode that we did? Oh God. No. It feels like years, but it also feels like two weeks. <laughs> That's yeah. an 2020 a skewed time time. Yeah, the references. five years of 2020. Yeah, exactly. The five years of 2020. Yeah. Thank you all for having me back. I really appreciate it. I'm so excited. I'm just excited to see you guys. Oh, it's so good to see you too. Well, okay. So I was talking to Valentina and we wanted to have you on for this discussion that we want to have today on post-traumatic growth because you are such a great advocate of what that process has been uh, for you with the traumas that you've experienced. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, we were like, there's no one better, perfect to lend themselves to this conversation than Lillian. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I mean, I've, I don't, I don't have a doctorate in any of these things, but I feel like I've done enough self-healing that I could, you know, practically have written a, a book about it. Maybe I will write a book about it one day, but, um, it's definitely been a long journey. Um, I was raped when I was 18, so that was 14 years ago. And um, yeah, it's uh, definitely, I loved hearing you say post-traumatic growth because I was expecting in my mind to hear you say post-traumatic stress disorder, which is what I was diagnosed with. Um, you know, and I remember hearing that for the first time thinking, isn't that like a war thing? But it's very much what people who are in war go through. 
Um, so post-traumatic stress, uh, post-traumatic growth is a, is a beautiful refiguring of, of, of this whole conversation. And I, I appreciate that, that new term. Yeah. Well, you know, it's actually, it was like literally a recent post that you did and like two days ago, literally two days ago. And I saw it and I was just like, Oh, we have to talk to Lillian about post-traumatic growth. Like this is it. This is the epitome of what that is. Amazing. Amazing. Mm -hmm. And it's strange because it's not a term that I've thought about in a long time, but as soon as I saw that, I was like, okay, we have to talk about this. I've literally never heard post-traumatic growth, but I, it is, it is, um, it's a process, man. And the number of, the number of comments and messages and things like that, that I, um, that I got, you know, what's interesting is last time I was on the podcast, we talked about people that were reaching out to say, I'm sorry that X, Y, Z happened. We were, we had just, we just talked about that the last time that I was on here. Y'all remember that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so I actually, in this post that I just did, did a disclaimer and said, Hey, I'm not looking for apologies in this and I'm not looking for I'm sorry's. And sure enough, out of like 170 comments or something crazy, nobody said I'm sorry and I was I was really grateful for that because it was just felt like the conversation was shifting around how you treat someone that's been through something without making them feel like there's something wrong with them or that they're less or that, you know, they're they can't come back from, from being broken. Um, I got a lot of heart emojis, which I really appreciated, you know? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, ask me what, what you have questions about. Well, yeah, so actually even just what you're bringing up now, I think it, it's so powerful that you went ahead and advocated for the way that you wanted to be responded to. Cause that's mm-hmm. something that we often don't do enough of and, mm-hmm. and our friends our family and, and our acquaintances and our social circle, majority of the time people are coming from a good place mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they want they want to be there and they want to respond and when it comes to grief and when it comes to trauma and more heavy experiences our culture tends to we're getting better at it we are definitely getting better at it but we've been in a large part for many generations been very sterile around it. So people get really uncomfortable often most of the time when these conversations come up, unless they're in this mental health world with us. So yeah, being able to like, to take the first step forward and say, Hey, this is how I prefer to be responded to when I talk mm-hmm. about this. It's yeah. so powerful and it goes ahead and it makes the whole experience lighter for every single person involved. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I love hearing that. Um, a, you know, a lot of, a lot, everything that I do online and with clients is, is very intuitive. You know, I, I am a master Reiki energy healer, but I don't have any formal counseling training or anything like that. I don't have any, uh, any kind of certifications or anything yet. And so hearing that, like, that this is actually part of the process of, of how people should share grief is, is really affirming. Um, and yeah, it was definitely received very differently. Um, the interesting thing is there are, you know, I've had, I'm 32, had very similar friends for a long time. And, um, I actually share about this every single year in some capacity every year. And I had someone that I've known for like six years, email me and say, I had no idea that this happened to you. Um, and so Either people are 
not listening when I'm talking about it or I've been vague before, but I think really saying this time, like this was rape, this was drugged, you know, drinks, this was, you know, this was traumatic. I think that kind of, um, maybe made people pay attention to it more seriously. Not just like, Oh, like, you know, someone pushed me at a party. It was like, listen, (laughs) it was, it was the whole deal. Well, actually we wanted to, to start off with that too. If you can, because our listeners aren't necessarily in the, in the Instagram stratosphere that we the sure. exist in. So whatever you feel comfortable sharing, which I, I at this point, I, I figure is you're very, very comfortable. Um, yeah. Just take us through your story and we can just kind of jump off from there. Yeah. So obviously like trigger warning for people listening and um, uh, I won't get too graphic, but um, yeah. So I was a freshman at Wofford College, which is a small, very conservative liberal arts school um, in South Carolina. And it was, uh, December 7th, 2006. I was 18. Um, this is someone that I knew. This is someone that, um, was supposed to be my date to the function the following night. Uh, he ended up going to the function with someone else in my sorority, like just left, you know, and, and let, went on the date with her and left with her. Um, this is, it happened on a night that, um, you know, a bunch of my friends, we went to a, a party that, somewhere where we didn't usually go. And a lot of women that night were like, what happened last night? I don't remember. So it was definitely something that was it, not intended by the man that I was with, um, but that everyone had something in their drinks that night at the entire party. There, it was um, something something funky happened that night. Um, I had walked this guy back to his room, knowing that you know I mean, he was going to be my date the next night. We had kind of hung out a few times before, and he'd been. Um, He'd pursued me like that before, but I had put up boundaries and, you know, just kind of like, no, 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 no. And um, that night there was just not enough no's that he could hear. Um, And um, what followed afterwards, um, the the best way, actually, I remember watching... um, Big Little Lies. Did you guys watch Big Little Lies with Nicole came in and um, gosh, what's the, she was kind of a newer actress at the time. The one who was raped and she runs on the beach and she has flashbacks and things. I remember seeing that and going, finally, I can fucking tell someone what this is. I can, I can reference what this is like. And that was my experience for four or five years afterwards of this I mean, I used to run and run and run trying to kind of get away from these flashbacks and this kind of just demon feeling kind of thing. Um, when you say run, like literally work. Literally physically just running. Yeah, yeah. I actually blew out my knee about uh, like a year and two weeks after it happened, um, just trying, I mean, just to get away from the the mental chaos that I was in. Um, and I, I experienced, uh, some, some bullying definitely from, from girls, you know, everyone gets drunk and has sex. I was like, no, I don't, 
I did not want this. I don't remember parts of this. I don't, you know, like this is not, I said, no, I, you know, I went on and on and it was very, um, it was a small school and it was very pushed to the side. Um, I remember, you know, as an 18 year old, I didn't know that the concept of rape was really about consent. You know, I thought of rape as someone, as, you know, a stranger that finds you and holds a knife to your neck, you know, and takes advantage of you like that. And so I even had a counselor say, cause my parents were like, something is off. Like you are, you are not okay. I was screaming a lot. Like I would just call my, both of my parents and scream at them. And I would like cuss them out. Um, the day after it happened, um, that night, I drove through Spartanburg, South Carolina, going 100 miles an hour, telling my mom I was going to kill myself. I'm talking like textbook post-traumatic stress disorder. I ended up having extreme social anxiety um, to the point where I would shake, like chatter and shake when I was even like trying to go to a football game. I started taking Xanax for anxiety and then I would took more Xanax and then I would go out and drink. And then I, I mean, I just was this spiral, spiral, spiral of just being angry, screaming, feeling misunderstood. Um, and so about a year after, um, all of this went down, um, my periods had, had gotten to be like 17 days out of the month. I mean, like her, I mean, talk about mind body experience, just, I couldn't stop there. There were times where I'd be in a sorority meeting and I would get up and it, like, I was like uncontrolled, like it looked like I was like hemorrhaging almost. Um, so I had to go to a lot of doctor's visits for that. Um, and it was exactly about a year and two weeks. I blew my knee out, did my finals, my sophomore year. I was a shell of myself. I was, I was a crazy person and my parents actually, my mother specifically, had consulted um, a psychic. And she said, you know, Lily might be schizophrenic, like something is wrong with her. Something is not okay. And the psychic was like, oh, she was assaulted. And oh, your mom didn't know? No. And my mom and I have been this close my entire life. Um, so for me to have not told her that was, I mean, a huge deal. Um, and so about 12 hours later, um, I had gotten an IUD to just stop the bleeding cause I just, nothing else would work, um, to regulate my periods. And I was kind of on some pain meds for just like, you know, your first IUD, you get some kind of like relaxers. And I ended up telling my mom the whole thing in my bed in, in Myrtle beach, just letting it all come out. And both my parents came and got in bed with me in my little tw like twin size or little double bed in, in my, my bedroom that I grew up in. And they just held me and cried with me. And, um, the healing journey began from there. So you went that whole year keeping it to yourself. Yeah. I mean, I told, you know, some girlfriends, but they, you know, said things like, yeah, but like every, you know, like we're in college, like people just get drunk, you know, like it's, still, and I was like, I said, no, like I said, no. In fact, I'd had a conversation with this guy prior to this. And I was like, you know, I'm, 
I dated someone in high school for three years and we didn't sleep together till the very, very end. And, you know, this is sex is very important to me. And it's, um, you know, sex is a, for two people that love one another. And I had had this exact conversation with this guy. Um, so that was part of, I think, what was so heart-wrenching was that, you know, I, I had, I had put myself in this position with someone that I didn't know and, um, a piece of me trusted him for some reason. Um, but in, in my healing journey, I really started to learn how to listen to my gut and the times, you know, fearful times and times when you go, "Mm, something's not right. How to listen to that. With how close you and your mom are, what kept you from opening up to her? So I grew up in a Presbyterian home um, and it, you know, we were not strict. You know, my parents always said, you know, if you drink, be careful, call us, never drink and drive. Um, you know, they were always, you don't have to make straight A's, but you have to do your best. I mean, they're very progressive, open communication parents. I mean, that I cannot stress that enough. They were great in that regard, but we never really talked about sex. Sex was just something that we never, ever talked about. Um, didn't really ever talk about birth control. Didn't ever really, that was just kind of the thing that like nobody talked about. Um, and I think I just was like, oh, this was the one thing that like, I was not supposed to fuck up, you know, because they had all this lenience around grades and even drugs and alcohol, like be careful. We just want you to be safe. But there was never a conversation around that. And I just was so ashamed and I felt so like my I think in my 18-year-old post-traumatic stress sort of brain, I thought my parents will, you know, disown me if they know that I mm. that this wasn't the first time that I'd slept with someone, I think was the, the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I work with clients, I've worked with, with quite a few young girls that have experienced sexual assault, and they're very, very wary of letting their parents in on it. Yeah. Um, they, they, a lot of the time they barely even want to talk to me about it. Mm-hmm. And most of the, my clients are very open. And that's the one area that I see women really wanting to keep locked up in a secret box mm-hmm. very vehemently. Yeah. There's, um, you know, uh, Paula and I are in, um, in Georgia and i you know, sometimes I wonder if it's Southern culture, if it is Puritan culture, if it is Catholic culture, if it is, you know, just this huge, but, you know, and, you know, gosh, in, in religions of the world all over the place, sex is such a taboo thing to talk about. I've watched so many documentaries and, and done so much study around, like, what do cultures look at with women and sexuality and, and sex? And, there aren't a lot of cultures in the world that are super open, you know, that are, that are, um, congratulatory, congratulatory is the wrong word, but, um, celebratory. Yes. Celebratory or praising of women being sexual beings. Um, which is something that I really had to come around to. Um, and, and, and part of, why I wanted to be a women's studies major once I eventually transferred to a women's college. I was like, I need to figure out, you know, more about this binding thread that is so awful that has, has, um, 
so many women experience this, um, but also, you know, how can we view ourselves differently and not just as these delicate flowers that should wait for marriage, you know? I mean, like, what are, what are the alternatives to that? Because that's not happening as often anymore. Yeah, that's been a, a lifelong dialogue for me. But yeah. as far as the post-traumatic growth conversation goes, I mean, the, the defining factor is, you know, that as, as we understand it, and I think even if you don't do research, you can kind of intuit this, is that if we are going to grow from the traumatic experiences, it requires a shift in our worldview. Absolutely. Yeah. And so what we what they found so far is that like, for the most part, it, it, age matters, right? So like, if you experience a really traumatic experience, like before the age of eight, it's hard. It's really hard because you don't have the cognitive capacity to be like, okay, how do I integrate this into my worldview in a way that can make me grow in resilience, right? And I know, right, even like, it, it's tough to, to sometimes sit with the realities of oh I know I've had clients that have you know uh, and you're right I'd never really thought about the worldview as it pertains to age and you know some women I can relate to and talk through but there is an age point you know that it is different to be taken advantage of as a child um so yeah so I think like what I hear you know I to me you're such and I, I know that you know I say this I don't expect that like you're perfectly okay with like the way that trauma affects you every, every single day. Healing is a constant unraveling and it's, it's ups and downs. It's, you know, we may show that we're doing okay one day and then it hits differently another day. So. Oh, the day that I wrote that post, I was a mess. And, and throughout the day I was like, I can't believe what a mess I am 14 years later, because I, I do talk openly about it. And I, I, you know, I'll say it on a, you know, on a, third date, you know, or even, I mean, I said it on a first date the other day, but there are these waves. You're absolutely right. Yeah. 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 I feel, I find that important to say, cause when I say like, you know, you're such a perfect example of post-traumatic growth. I think sometimes when we hear that kind of stuff about ourselves, uh, especially healing from, um, you know, mental health challenges, it can feel kind of like, no, uh, but like, I can't be pinned to that because I'm still going to be very human. And yeah. it's going to be triggered, especially when there's traumas. Like when we meet those triggers again, they're still going to affect us. They may, and maybe not, maybe we'll reach a point where, where maybe you'll reach a point where those things might be like absolutely completely neutral. Who knows? But for the most part, as we move through our life, they just, we learn to surf those waves a little differently, but it doesn't mean that they still are not fun. <laughs> Yeah. And I love that you just said surf the waves differently because, you know, my grief the other day when I wrote about this, so today is the ninth and I wrote about it on the seventh. So it was just two days ago. My grief was not, oh, I'm so sad that this happened to me. Of course, like there's part of that, but my grief was really remembering how broken I was afterwards. It was this, it was almost like a bird's eye view grief looking back, almost like these snapshots, these screenshots in my mind of just how horribly broken I was for those years. And I, I was grieving her. I was grieving for her, my younger 14 years ago self. I was really, um, I was really grieving everything that she went through and not so much the actual act itself, but man, girl, like looking back third person, girl, you went through the ringer, <laughs> you know, 
and I'm so sorry that you went through that, but it was, um, and definitely made me who I am now. Yeah. It's, it's what I'm feeling when what you're describing is just kind of like a deep, loving compassion that can bring us to our knees sometimes. Totally. Yeah. When we see the younger versions of ourselves, because you realize like how unprepared those versions of us were to face certain things that happened. Totally. It was, it was, it was a different kind of grief than I've experienced at this day in years past. It was a more mature, more mothering grief of looking back and just saying, wow, I'm so sorry. You know, it was almost like a childlike, like you would speak to your inner child, but it was speaking to my inner 18 year old that was punishing herself for years with every method that you can think of. I mean, it was awful. It was awful. And it was a war path. Anybody that came across, like I was a, I was, I would rip somebody to shreds. Like, I mean, my fuse was so short. That, that inner Jaguar was on a, on a different mm-hmm. vibe back then. I, it was like a pack of vicious, very starving Jaguars. Yes. <laughs> starving Jaguars. <laughs> you said you had textbook PTSD. What did that look like for people who don't know? Sure. Yeah. So I had the nightmares. Um, I had like, a, just like you, you hear our, so, you know, um, you know, a lot of military ex-military people have nightmares of, you know, bombs going off and things like that. And flashbacks are a big thing. Um, just generalized anxiety around your personal safety, um, is, is huge. Um, and then just a sense of self-loathing and self-doubt uh, that is almost inexplicable, that you really mm-hmm. don't feel that you are capable of completing any tasks. I mean, you know, a lot of like ex-military people, they lose their jobs when they try to go back into the job force. They're anxious. They lose their, you know, they it's kind of this like spiral because they haven't dealt with this trauma of... Um, you know, being shot at multiple times or, you know, whatever was like really put them in danger or seeing, you know, someone else die in front of them and how traumatic that is. Um, when you're raped, it's almost like you see a part of you die in front of you. Um, but it's yourself. <laughs> so uh, it was a lot of that. Um, I definitely struggled with disordered eating for a long time, really punishing my body, not allowing my body to be fueled um, because I was angry at my shell in a sense. Um, of course, I had this the physical manifestations of, I, I, I have not heard of many women going through the same like crazy bleeding afterwards where, but I've heard of other, you know, reproductive issues. But um, for me, it was like, I couldn't stop bleeding just could not stop. It was like I was hemorrhaging. It was insane. And, you know, those things kept going even after I told my parents and, uh, you know, I, I actually DM'd somebody the other day and said, I had a very, very, very privileged healing process. I understand that therapy is expensive and all the things that I did cost money, you know, and that is what is over so overwhelming to me when I think about how many women have experienced this and how few women get to go through the same kind of healing that I've gone through. That is very overwhelming to me. Mm. Yeah. Sometimes all we can do is sit with the the grief of being human, right? It sits right there alongside the love. Yeah. Yeah. 
and I, I, you know, I think that's why I wanted to be a midwife. I, that's why, you know, when I was finishing college, I was like, I want to be a midwife. I want to help women, um, you know, bring new life into the world. I want to be on this journey with women healing their bodies as they, you know, grow a new life. And, um, I think that was all related to sexual trauma and the fact that I didn't get pregnant from this and didn't have to have an abortion or have to choose whether I would keep a child. But then once I did my apprenticeship at Grady, you know, a lot of me felt looking back, it was a feeling like, were these consensual pregnant, you know, was this consensual sex with a lot of these women that were pregnant that were 16? Was this, did they knowingly go into this, like knowing that they could get pregnant? Um, and that was overwhelming. That was really overwhelming. I don't know if that has a space in the podcast, but that was very overwhelming. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially because it's, of course it'd be overwhelming. It's, it would be directly linked to your trauma to kind of walk into a space where you're seeing young girls impregnated. I mean, it's just the association that our mind makes in those moments when our worldview in our sense of safety is shattered is not something that's very predictable and it's going to be different for everybody. Totally. Super unpredictable. Yeah. And I even had to kind of like pick my women's studies courses and stuff. You know, there were texts and things that I'd be like, damn, I have to read this for class. You know, I have to, I couldn't tell you titles or whatever, but like, I remember reading articles and chapters of different books and stuff that I'd be like, man, (laughs) I got to relive this in someone else's shoes again and again as a women's studies major. How did your relationship to your body unravel after that? Yeah. So one of the things that I mentioned was that like, it's, it's really hard to complete tasks. Um, and so for me at Wofford, I was, I was dropping classes to go work out like, like a, like a mad woman. Like I just wanted to, I was searching, I was trying to get my endorphins up because I was so depressed. Um, but in the process I was punishing my body, um, I was watching every little thing that I ate. I was, and that was already there a little bit in high school too. Um, but it just blew up as this, your body is bad, be as small as possible. You know, you're not safe kind of thing. And then once I transferred to Agnes Scott, there was, uh, a wider diversity in the, the kinds of bodies that I saw actually, And I felt more at home in my own body. I felt safer in my own body being with other women on campus, you know, no male students at all. And I started to really consider working out as strengthening instead of punishing. So I started lifting weights um, kind of towards the end of being at Wofford. Because once I had told my parents, you know, I kind of was starting to try to shift a little bit, but I ended up getting, I ended up getting mono. So, um, that's what ultimately kind of took me out of Wofford completely was I just got so sick. I was just, my body was just like, I'm, I'm done, you know, but, um, strength training was really helpful and I still love strength training. Yeah. So that's actually like really common, uh, with sexual assault is that because your body and I, I, I guess this can happen at war too. When your body is the avenue through which the trauma occurs, that you start to almost detest or hate your body. Yes. Yes. Especially when I felt like it was failing me with this bleeding thing and this aches and pains. And when I blew my knee out literally within days, within the year, um, my left knee on my left side, the feminine side that holds so much kind of, um, I've, and I've had pain bodies on my left side 
ever since that happened. And this week on the 14th year, my left side has been raging. I mean, just so much pain. My hip has been, I mean, right before we got on the call, I was like trying to reiki my hip. So, you know, energetic pain bodies are real, really real. That's so, it makes me wonder, like as you're talking, I've always had pain on the whole right side of my body. Maybe that's a conversation for another time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Oh man, they're so... When I learned that, I was like, oh, well, that all makes sense. The first time I was ever reikied, someone said, um, her name was Danny. She said, you have a thorn in your hip, in your left hip. And it's mm. and it's around, um, which is like your hip is like right where your sacral chakra is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like, you know, if you draw a line across your hips, your womb is right in the middle. And your sacral is your sexuality, your creativity, Um, and yeah, it's like, there's still a little sand spur there almost. Um, and it, but it goes away and then it comes back and it goes away and it comes back just like trauma apparently does. Yeah. Well, you've learned, yeah, sometimes it's closer to the surface, sometimes not as much, but as we were saying, you learn to surf the waves of it differently. And, and just to kind of backtrack, you were saying that your healing process, it really feels like it got started that moment laying in bed with your parents, with your community. It's, it's, you know, it comes up as like, that's the moment that you started to let love back in. Can you kind of take us through what that healing process then, you know, what, what came along with that? What was that like? Yeah. Gosh. Uh, do you guys know about anything about lemurs that they have? Like they, they are like this, um, they're a matriarch and they, um, they literally sleep all around the queen at night, like the matriarch of the queen. They, they create these things called lemur balls where they, they sleep around the, the queen. And it was like being in a lemur ball. Like they just held me there and, you know, told me that there was, you know, nothing to be ashamed of, which I think was just the, you know, this shame, shame, shame is a, I don't know what the frequency of shame is, but it is ugly, you know? And uh, my dad had been seeing a therapist in Myrtle Beach, and he actually had been the police station's therapist for like 30 years. So he had a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot of experience with, with trauma and, you know, people seeing really, experiencing really traumatic things, stabbings, all kinds of stuff. So I started seeing him sometimes twice a week. Uh, the summer that I came home, the, so I, um, so that was 2007 was when they found out in December. And then I got sick and took incompletes and dropped out, uh, the following spring. And I had, I had had like kind of a manic episode that spring where I was just beside myself, shaking, crying. I mean, just, I, I couldn't leave my apartment. I was like in shock. And that was after I'd kind of come out to my parents. So that happened. Um, ended up going to therapy a lot that following summer. Went to Agnes Scott, started in the fall of 2008. Uh, and then from there, and I'm so glad we've had, uh, we have time still to talk about this. I started doing this thing called NIA, N-I-A, NIA movement. And it was at the YMCA with a 70-something-year-old instructor. And all I saw on the schedule was that it said dance. And I was like, wow, I like dance. Okay. Um, and it, and I'm still not a runner. I've never been a runner since I blew my knee out. Um, 
I switched to spin, but I was like, you know, I'll try this, this dance stuff. And turns out it was this basically a healing arts modality, um, that was randomly taught at the YMCA. I'm actually, um, certified as an instructor, but I don't teach it. And it was the most healing thing, probably one of the most healing things for me. It was very much this like reclamation of your body, this shaking, chanting. Um, we would scream no uh, in the middle of the class. And then we would scream yes in the middle of the class, kind of like putting up these warrior and it was all women and they were like 60 and over, but we were like these Decatur warrior women. And I would go on these retreats with these older women. And it was like, I, I mean, I had, a, I had several friends at Agnes Scott. I like met my soulmate best friend there, but these women were like my community and they were really helpful. And then, and then I continued traditional therapy, talk therapy, and then um, started receiving energy healing to really move these pain bodies uh, about three years ago. And that, and you have you felt the energy healing moving the pain bodies? Can you really feel that? That's so oh, yeah. fascinating. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Like a thickness in my knee and hip, and then afterwards, it's not there. That's it. It's literally gone. That's incredible. You know, like we don't talk about, I mean, the Western medical model doesn't really talk about energy, but we're creeping it in there. It's, it's coming in because people are catching on, but energy is such a real thing. And emotion is energy in motion. And it's like, the thing is with trauma is that it, it freezes trauma gets frozen in our bodies. So it's 100%. So it's like that the emotional voltage of that moment essentially kind of gets frozen in you. Yes. And that's what I see a lot of women um, lose weight after they recognize how much trauma they're holding on to in their physical bodies, that it's, it's, it's an actual physical weight, but it's emotional trauma. And I, I don't know how to speak to that, but I know it's fucking real. No, <laughs> know, I, you know, it's so real. The, the physical, the mind and the body. I mean, Valentina's doing a ton of work with breath work and all, that is literally, it's, you can feel your, She's done it to me a couple of times, but you can feel your tingling, like the movement. And we've done Vipassana meditation, which is all about like moving your consciousness up and down your body. And I love that. Yeah. There's something to be said for not always, you have to pair the mind and the body. Like the therapy has its place, but getting into the body and receiving the support of your community, just being connected like that. All of those elements are so integral for creating an environment in which that post-traumatic growth can take place. And then the other thing that I want to get into is like, how did you shift your worldview? Because that's kind of what had to happen. You know, even when I hear you say like that you went into like women's studies and it was almost, you know, to me, it's like you, you went out there and you decided like, I have to make some different sense out of this. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I want to touch really quickly on the, the mind body connection too. When, um, about five or six years ago, I still had this short fuse of like, um, it was almost like I didn't trust myself still. And so my dad enrolled me, he said, I found you a therapist. She's a mindfulness-based therapist and she teaches MBSR, which is mindfulness-based stress reduction. And what I started with her was body scans, like you said, you know, going through. And I think really getting back in touch with my body so that I could make decisions based on, okay, is this 
you know, is this grabbing my throat when I try to talk about it? Is this tightness in my chest? And I, and, and then of course, then I went through the whole, like, I don't know if I talked about this on the last episode, but my gut health, I had to get completely cleaned up. I mean, being able to make decisions with your body after something shitty has happened to your body is a really, really special uh, gift to be able to come back into your body and say, I'm going to trust you again, but I've got to retrain you. Um, what does that look like for you, for people who are listening and they have no idea, like, what does that mean? Make decisions with my body. Yeah. So it's, it's paying attention to, you know, I teach spin. So like literally paying attention to the tension where you're holding your tension, or if, you know, you're having a conversation with some, someone and you start to get kind of hot or you start to feel, um, like something other than kind of your homeostasis, listen to that ask yourself, where is this coming from? Am I uncomfortable? Am I unsafe? Am I, um, is this person threatening me? Because as women are, are taught to turn it all off and shut the fuck up. And so to really go, okay, wait, this is part of my language is to use my body, not just to speak with, but to listen with is huge. That's so important because we're taught with manners and be a nice girl and be, be a good little girl, you know, give them a hug. Just we're taught to make people feel comfortable. And we're taught that you're being way too assertive or aggressive. If you dip out the moment that something feels uncomfortable, but it's when you start listening to your body. And that's something that I've personally also been working on lately is making total decisions based off of what my body tells me. It's like, that is your ultimate guiding compass that yes. will not do you wrong. And yes. we need to get super fucking comfortable. Everyone needs to get super fucking comfortable at really honing in on what that is. So I love that you're talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the body scans are kind of like, Hey, this thing was numb. Get back in touch, you know? And I, I resisted body scans for a long time. And I would tell my therapist, this Stephanie Swan, I would say, I'm in such pain. I've got such pain bodies that I hate focusing on this. And she's like, start there, you know? The tricky part is the goal, like to me is, cause I'm a therapist that specializes in anxiety and, and PTSD, right? So the tricky part is like, the goal is to get to a point where we can trust our body, where that channel is clear for receiving messages. However, when you go through a trauma, which is an anxiety, PTSD is an anxiety-based condition. The problem is that your amygdala, the parts of your brain that perceives threat and also your body starts generalizing threat to situations yes. that are not threatening. Yes, which is why I was so reactive because everything felt like a threat. Everything felt like I was being attacked. So I say that because I'm sure that a lot of our listeners struggle with anxiety and it's like, well, shoot, <laughs> if I listen to my body, it's going to tell me to hide under the covers and like never go out anywhere in the world. So it's gonna be a dance. Yeah, it's a practice. So how did, what did that look like for you? Rebuilding your relationship with your body and learning to really listen even deeper. I mean, I know that this sounds cliche, but like slowing down, you can't, you can't do a body scan in two seconds. You know, I mean, Stephanie Swan says she's a, um, she's a John Kabat-Zinn uh, instructor. And so is my dad that it takes 45 minutes. 
So it's something that you have to carve out time. I was like, I don't have fucking time for this. I got to teach spin. I got to do all my work. I got to, you know, this is like a, this is, this would be the time that I need to work my body out. And she's like, well, too bad. You got to slow your body down so that you can learn how to listen to it. And she really, she knew how to talk to me because she got across to me almost like a coach, like a sports, like an athletic coach would talk to me, which really made me listen. Um, I needed somebody to say, if you want to do this differently, you have to be different. You have to learn different. You know, I mean, she, she, she was a hard, she was, she was hard on me. And I loved that. A little bit of tough love. I was like, you know, I'm, I take care of my energy and my body when I work out. And she's like, that's not you listening to the, to like what's coming up as a response in your body. So I think in general, slow down is the most beautiful advice because anxiety does speed us up so much that there's no way that we're going to be able to listen to what our bodies have to say if we're so in our head and thinking about the next thing and the next step and trying to do whatever the next thing is. And this society is such a fast, anxious society. So slowing down is such an active, an active, active healing process. Yeah. Paula, I want to get back to your question. I'm sorry. I know. This is so important because rebuilding the relationship with your body, I was ready to jump to um to how you rebuilt your worldview, which is the mind. And that's it's important. So it's like we gotta partner up both. So we went through like rebuilding the relationship with the body. Let's jump into the mind. Yeah. Take it away, Paula. Re-ask the question. Yeah. Oh, well, the question was just what was the process like for you? I mean, humans are storytelling creatures. Our narrative makes a has a huge impact on us. Just like that first year before you told your parents, the narrative was, I should be really ashamed. I, sh- I just messed up the one thing that they gave me um, for some freedom or that they, you know, the one thing I could have messed up, I messed it up. Now I have to hide this forever. And that was just exacerbating the trauma. So like the narrative, that's why it has to be a partnership between both things, right? So the narrative was recontinuing the the you're re-traumatizing yourself essentially with that your mind was re-traumatizing you with that narrative. The moment they held you in that bed and told you not to be ashamed, a new narrative began to be born. I'm curious how you continued building on that narrative and how your experience with women's studies and you know all the healing modalities that you experienced allowed you to kind of integrate the story of that rape experience into a life that you could be at peace with from a narrative standpoint. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 I think, you know, something that is, and I, this is kind of trigger warning too, but you know, this, um, this therapist that I saw, uh, Elliot, um, the guy that had been the, um, the, the police therapist, you know, he said, you can see yourself as a victim forever and you can adopt that mentality or you can choose something else. And I remember sitting there going, who the fuck does this guy think he is? I am a victim. I, I was, you know, like, of course I'm a victim, you know, on and on. And now I look back all these years later and I'm like, he was getting me to create a new narrative for myself that that was part of my story, but that's not the identity that I attached to forever. And at the time it took me weeks. I was angry. I remember getting in the car with my mom. I don't want to go see that therapist again. He didn't understand, but he was really trying to get me to see that this was, um, a thread in my story. 
Um, someone actually commented about this um, on the post that I did, and they said, when we look at trauma like this that that changes our lives, instead of looking at it and attaching ourselves to it, instead to say this too has its place, this too has its like it's it's part of my story, you know. And so I started looking at it like that, as this is you know, as much a part of my story as where I grew up and the color of my skin and other things that I didn't have control over. And that really helped a lot. And to, even though I was re-triggered a lot as a women's studies major and just learning worldwide, universally, what kind of shit women go through on a day-to-day basis across income levels and skin colors and ages and nationalities, you know, we're a lot stronger than we think. We really are. That's what was coming up for me as you were talking. I'm like, Lillian, like you switched from, from victim to warrior. Yeah. Right. Does that resonate? Cause that's oh, yeah. what I feel from you. Yeah. Yeah. And that's also, I think where working out came in for me was I felt so strong, so strong, so strong when I was, just going really hard with my body. And I still do that, but it was, again, you have to do mind and body. So it was, okay. Then, then for a long time, I had this hard shell around me. Like I'm such a warrior. No one can talk to me, touch me. You know, I'm in charge of everything. And so dating became really hard because I was so closed off. I was so, I don't need a man. I don't want anybody. Nobody talked to me. And so there's had to be, you know, kind of a shift of like, I still don't need a man, but I would like partner. Partnership would be lovely, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, it's like checking in with your narrative constantly, which is exhausting, but totally (laughs) worth it, right? Man, this journey of being human. Yeah, I mean, you can be gentle warriors. I think that's kind of like the shift, right? Because especially when you've gone through traumas and really difficult experiences that shake your whole ground the only way to come out of it truly like a lifeline if you want to have a quality of life I believe and I've experienced through my practice and in my personal life is to say like we got to get back up yeah yeah I say that in my spin classes when we do like uh, presses on the handlebars if you are going to if you feel like you're falling notice that you're really just dropping down just to press back up, just to get stronger. Like it is okay to fall. Um, but in your falling, know that there will be a time where you can still press back up. And that's been kind of a huge life metaphor for me. And knowing that like, nobody's going to do this shit for me. You know, I recognize that early on, you know, I could go to therapy and I could, you know, all these things, but like, if I wasn't going to change my own mind, then like, it was all, I remember. So there was a huge turning point with my body and with, and with my mind, I was at Agnes Scott. I'd gotten kind of back into this, like working out so much routine that I was kind of, you know, certain, it wasn't that I was skipping classes, but I was like, oh, this class is really hard. I'm going to drop this class. And I remember stopping right there and being like, you need to get on board with your life. Like this is your responsibility. And it was the same thing going to like the, the food hall, you know, instead of picking around and choosing things that would really not fill me up, but just, you know, just enough calories to get by. It was like, 
you need to get like you need to enroll in your own life. Okay. And that was internal. That was nothing that anybody had to sit me down and intervene. It was, it was this like, bitch, get it together. I mean, I know that sounds super harsh, but it, I was like, it's at the end of the day, it is your responsibility to get back up. Sometimes we need to hear that from ourselves, right? We reach that point where it's like, I was telling Valentina this the other day that I, I think I was working out when this hit me, when I was thinking about this, that it doesn't, life doesn't care if you offer resistance. It doesn't, life is going to keep on moving like this earth and everything that takes place in the natural, in the animal kingdom has been happening for a long time and it's going to keep happening and it's kind of savage. It's a bit yeah. savage. Yeah. You know, life is beautiful, but it's kind of savage. Yeah. And it doesn't care if you offer it resistance, you can offer it all the resistance you want, but like, you know, the lion is still going to eat the antelope. doesn't matter. Right. That antelope better run nature is still going to happen. So we can either keep trying to offer resistance, which is just going to cause life to drag us tooth and nail through the mud because then we're trying to resist where our power is being given up in resistance rather than in building in that moment. Right. So like life doesn't care. Things are going to keep happening. So we can either choose like, I'm going to resist that this is happening. I'm going to resist that this happened to me. I'm going to be angry at it forever. Or at some point, I'm going to say, look, this happened, but life life doesn't care. Life is very loving. It's going to offer me a lot of tools, but it's going to keep moving. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so then it's like, okay, I better just flow. I better figure out a way to flow and ride this wave. Hell yeah. And the environment, I think, is is everything, right? So like, I could not have been in this poisonous environment at Wofford and be where I am now. Instead, the environment that I was in, the women that were surrounding me, I mean, talk about like, I'm trying to think of some kind of animal kingdom reference, but like think of maybe like an oil spill in an ocean and you're just like, all right, so everyone here is toxic. I can't get out of this. If I try to fly away, I'm covered in oil. Uh, How can I do this? And then cleaning yourself off and like someone saying, hey, you don't have to be in this toxic place. Let me lift you out, clean you up and put you over here to the side. But once you're cleaned off, like it's your responsibility to get up and go. And so finding a new flock of people to be around that were like get up and go kind of people that were changing the world. I mean, these women that were graduating ahead of me were doing incredible research projects and social work and nonprofit work and leadership roles. And I was like, this could be me if I choose it, but it's not going to happen just because I'm in the environment. Like I have to also work at it. So man, I was thinking about this interview going into this. I've been like, what could we not cover that could help? Because it has to be a little bit of everything or maybe a lot of everything. It has to be mind. It has to be body. It has to be spirit. It has to be physical. It has to be all of it. And I know that that is a a high charge to tell someone that has been through trauma to be like, wait, I I went through this trauma and now I have to do all the shit. Yep. It's going to take every piece. I think it's so important that you said surrounding yourself in, in an environment where when you don't have that strength, other people can be your strength for you. Yeah. Or at least inspiration. Right. You know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Community. That's, you know, that's the other piece. Yeah, You got community. Like, even if it's just one person, if it's just one person, you were social beings, you know, even if it's just one person, like 
that can say like, keep going, keep going today. And then you get up and you go today. And then tomorrow, maybe you find, you know, you keep doing that for a while. Then you find another person and little by little, as you find your strength and you find, and you build that resilience muscle, you, it, it you really, life really does start giving you more and more of a community, but you have to choose to step into it no matter how freaking uncomfortable it is. And yeah, and do that work. Yeah. Step by step. And I know that that is just as a disclaimer, I know if this is recent trauma or if you have never really looked at your trauma or really dealt with it, I know that some of this can sound harsh and like too tall of an order to ask of you based on where your heart is because it is tough. It is really, I mean, if someone were to have told me even a year out that this is what it was going to take, I would have been like, I don't have it in me, you know, but to do it step by step, you, you, you know, I wrote in the post the other day, you crawl and then you run, you know, but you gotta, you gotta move a little bit to start. You gotta crawl. You gotta not roll over dead. You gotta crawl first. You, no one is going to expect you to get up and run, but you gotta crawl and you gotta move. And then you gotta start to kind of climb and then you gotta walk and then you'll skip. And then one day you will run again. I know, I know that these are tall tasks to ask of people, you know, but was it worth it? Girl. Yes. <laughs> life. The work life was is worth here it. for us. The work was worth it. Right. Yeah. I yeah. Think, and, and that's the work. Yes. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and I, I know that that's what you meant, Valentina, yeah. but like, I, that's something that like, actually is, I've, I've seen circulating. And I completely agree with that. When it comes to trauma, it's like when people say like, everything happens for a reason, eh, Nah, that's not the, you know, that's not where I'm so thankful for this, whatever. That's the one I hate. I'm like, please don't say thankful. That's just so traumatizing. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, okay, it happened. It would have been fine if it didn't happen. But because I, you know, went through this journey and decided to check in instead of check out, I discovered Mm -hmm. a version of myself that I would never have met. And that actually happens to be quite powerful. Oh, love that. I'll also say I I only started doing this work probably six years after it happened. And so eight years ago, Um, but this, you know, very future self goal setting, goal oriented kind of way of thinking about life. And there is, of course, there's beauty in absolutely recognizing the present moment. But um, I think that it would have been helpful for me earlier into um, or like sooner after experiencing trauma to do some goal setting of like, okay, I know I don't know. I know I don't want to be where I am right now, but where do I want to be? Um, and I probably, it, it would have been pretty directionless because you just feel so overwhelmed most of the time. But now I look back and I think that if we can goal set a little bit, at least you have this newer, fresher, stronger version to look forward to. Like, Hey, I see you out there and I'm coming for you is it's actually been kind of my mantra this year. Like I know what I can be and I'm coming for her. I love that. You know? So to set your sights on like to, to literally bet on yourself after something like this and say, I know this was fucking hard and heartbreaking and heart wrenching and it might've torn your life apart. But if you bet on yourself you'll meet yourself in a place that you're much happier in. 
we tend to think when we're in those dark spots that this is life. Like that's just life now. But taking that very next step and just having blind faith that it's somehow, some way gonna get better if we just do one more thing, take the I next step. Hannah, but it's so true. <laughs> but it's so true. And I know we can all attest to that. We yeah. can all attest to that. Life just gets so it'll it'll get better. One day you'll wake up and you'll be like, Thank God I bet on myself. Thank yes. God. Because yes. life feels has a potential to feel so good. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, ladies. Oh, and before we finish, what is mental health to you today? Current Lillian reality. <clears throat> I think it's I think it's awareness, you know, like it's this it's this daily check-in that I don't swim in any kind of story but recognize this with a bird's eye view to step back and go, okay, so this is what's on my paper today that I'm reading. If I don't like this story, then it's going to affect my mind, which trickles down into my heart, which drops out into becoming my vibration, which changes what shows up for me. So if I'm reading a story that is going to make my mind do that to my heart, that's going to do that to my vibration, then I need to change the story right now. And the health of my story is based on what I choose to put in this story on this page on my script. I love that. Even if we don't love it, we can practice. We can practice. We can practice. We can practice. Even if you can only shift a few words on the paper that day, then, you know, I mean, no one's going to expect you to like crumple up a whole piece of paper after someone dies or something, you know, and be like, okay, start over. But to say, here are some good parts about it. Here's some bad parts about it. I'm going to be present to both. And um, yeah, I think just your, your, your extreme awareness. I love that. All right, Lillian, thank you so much. Oh, thank you guys. So we were able to do that. Yeah, of course. Thanks for, thanks for having me for another session. I, I appreciate it. I hope we can do another one. I'm just love oh, being with you guys. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> we love you and that was perfect thank you so much thank you thank you thank you can't wait to hear it good luck with yeah. your next recording thank you so much for listening pretty mental family we missed you thank you so much for having patience with us as paul and i are currently going through a few transitions which you will know more of as time passes but you know 2020 man we're just trying to figure th figure things out sometimes one mental health one. is number one for us and pretty mental is number one for us so stick with us bear with us as we get this releasing schedule back on track mm -hmm. uh, yeah we will you know we say we're gonna release one every monday and 95 percent of the time we will but we are also proponents of honoring obviously your pace and and honoring our pace and honoring our mental health and so there may be times where we take a step back, but we do plan for the most part, we do plan on releasing these every Monday and we love you guys for being a part of this journey. Remember to be kind to yourselves and keep tuning in Mondays, most Mondays, <laughs> at 6am. Yes. That's like the most, can I just be real? That's like the most foreign shit. <laughs> have you ever seen, have you seen that meme? That's like, we're open on mondays maybe tuesdays perhaps wednesday it's like 
you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, our our Latino roots are coming out. You know, it's just like more chill vibes. I do we you know we do say we belong on like tropical islands. So here we go. No, but we are devoted to y'all. I promise, but I just had to point that out. No, that's hilarious. Mondays, most Mondays, 95% of Mondays. Perhaps Mondays. We love you, pretty mental family. We love you. Be kind to yourself out there. Los queremos mucho. Until next time, we love you. (laughs) Again. (laughs) All right. Bye.